Every day, traders and investors dive in to tackle the ever-changing markets to find opportunity. Futures Radio Show is your number one source for answers to the questions that all market participants want to ask. Veteran futures trader Anthony Crudelli sits down with the most influential leaders and top traders in the industry. Now, here's your host, Anthony Crudelli. What's up, everybody? Anthony Crudelli here, and thank you for tuning in for this episode with Mark Dow. Futures Radio Show is sponsored by CME Group. They are the world's leading and most diverse futures and options exchange. CME Group's markets help individuals and businesses around the world effectively manage risk. For access to free educational tools and resources for the active individual trader, please visit activetrader.cmegroup.com. Remember, new shows are posted on Mondays and Thursdays. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Now, if you're enjoying the show, everybody, please leave a review on iTunes. This show is also sponsored by Trading Technologies, FTSE Russell, and RJO Futures. To learn about some great offers that these sponsors have for our listeners, please visit futuresradioshow.com slash sponsors. Today, I spoke with the head of Dow Global Advisors and behavioral macro blog and Twitter feed, Mark Dow. I kicked off today's show asking Mark if he thinks the coronavirus is the only reason we're seeing the market sell off, or was the market already in process of topping and the coronavirus was the push that triggered what was already going to happen. Mark explains why fiscal policy is more important right now than monetary policy. He explains why he believes that gold and Bitcoin are not a hedge or safe store of value. Tells us what he is trading right now and his process for looking at some investments during this time of crisis. Last but not least, we talked about liquidity in the bond markets and his thoughts on the recent sell-off in crude oil. So without further ado, let me take you right to the interview with Mark. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Great to speak with you, my friend. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show on a Saturday. Uh, And, you know, there's a lot to talk about today, Mark. I mean, obviously a lot going on in the markets. And before we get into me picking your brain about a lot of these things, because really you're one of my go-to people to make sense of a lot of what's happening. Because I think that everybody could be so overwhelmed by all of the different news and headlines and services and everybody telling everybody what's going on. I think that you do a a great job of really making sense of it, at least for me. So uh, what I want to do is I want people that maybe don't know you and your background, for you to just start off by just telling us what your background is, so they can get a, a sense of where you're coming from with, with all of these things that we're going to talk about today. Great. Uh, that's perfect, Anthony. Uh, um, let me start with, uh, well, first of all, there may be some noises in the background, uh, animal noises that here in the office uh, with me. So uh, bear, bear with me on that. Uh, uh, I'm a sixth generation Californian, maybe start with that, very proud uh, and uh, happy to have been able to come back to my hometown uh, to, to live. Uh, I have uh, kind of advanced degrees in, in um, international political economy, and I spent the first part of my career working at the, the Treasury Department and uh, the International Monetary Fund, specializing primarily in uh, in debt sustainability. Uh, but it, I went around the world uh, figuring out country you know countries in crisis and what policies got them there and what and how they might fix them and, and how we could we could help them. 
been to like 80 countries. So uh, I've seen, uh, it's like a, a doctor who has uh, spent a lot of time in the emergency room. You start to recognize patterns uh, a little bit better on the political economy front. Uh, after that, I was plucked out of the IMF to, to a mutual fund in Boston as a sovereign analyst. And, and pretty soon I ended up managing money, emerging market debt fund, and then other funds in the fixed income area. After some time, I, uh, the next big challenge was a global macro. That seemed to me, you know, they always said economists can't invest very well, but certainly they can't trade. And that seemed to be the, ne the next challenge uh, to take on. So I did. I, w I worked uh, for seven years at, at Faro, uh, uh, a global macro hedge fund uh, in, in, uh, in New York. And since then, I've come back to California and, you know, running money for individuals, although I've been giving money back over the past a few years for for peace of mind and quality of life, and for no other other reason. And uh, writing on the behavioral macro blog and running a behavioral macro Twitter feed, which is kind of private, subscription based. It's not very expensive, and you can come and go as you please. But the idea is to share some of my knowledge with uh, people who want to get up that curve faster and don't want to learn by getting repeatedly punched in the face uh, the way I did. One more thing I should add in my uh, Treasury experience. So I've worked for three different administrations, both Republican and Democrat. Uh, and it, that really helps to, to see both sides of the equation. I worked for Bush Sr. and I worked for, worked for Clinton. And then as a young man, a young guy, I, I did an internship in the, at the tail end of the Reagan administration in the uh, office of uh, uh, the trade representative office. So that gave me a, a, an appreciation for for a, a lot of politics. And for those who, who know my feed, they might be surprised, but I started as a registered Republican and, and I've been independent at, you know, starting probably 20 years ago, I became independent and have stayed that way uh, ever since. So that's kind of the filter of, uh, uh, through which you should see uh, where I'm, uh, I'm coming at these things. So in, in my behavioral macro feed, you'll see that I'm pr pretty scrupulous at, at separating uh, politics from my analysis in a way I don't on the Mark Dow Twitter handle feed. Just so you know, you explained a lot about your financial and macro background, but also with the current events that we're seeing right now, you actually have very close ties to Italy as well. Yeah, so I'm I uh, married uh, an Italian girl many years ago when I was a graduate student, and uh, from Bologna, Italy, and her parents are aging; they're in their eighties. Mom hasn't been well for a number of years, and they've been homebound. And she's been going back and forth and helping helping them out, and and she's kind of stuck over there now with them on, on a lockdown, and uh, it's it's uh, it's pretty serious. It gave me a, a bit of that, that coupled with a few people on Twitter who, you know, I, I, like a lot of people, I was I was skeptical at first because we were only hearing from the perma bears who shout from the rooftops that the sky is falling at any uh, new news item, and uh, you know, fading them has been kind of the money trade. For the past 10 years. So I, I was initially skeptical. And then I saw people that aren't that way starting to uh, ring the alarm. And I was able to see how things were progressing in Italy. And, you know, when the facts change, you change your mind. Right. Uh, and that's that's what I did. So it got, it, it got much more serious. The other factor behaviorally, because in my you know, when I got to markets, I realized that uh Things work differently from the textbook, uh, you know, very fast. Behavioral uh, economics and behavioral finance really was the prism through which you should analyze these things. And I know that we tend to overstate the imaginable risks, typically things that we have seen in the past or read about. And we underestimate the severity 
of unimaginable risks. This is an unimaginable risk. So we haven't even thought through uh, the economic ramifications for, you know, for the supply chain and just con you know, concrete things. People stop paying other people and there's a cascading effect through, uh, through the economy and it can be very serious. And our economy has gotten much more financialized and much more complex. So we don't know what's coming. Uh, but, you know, like I, I always say to the guys who follow on behavioral macro, uh, open mind, open eyes. Uh, and 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 just be ready. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every single day when I sit back and I do my meditations and I just look back at the day and the market and the headlines and you know when I'm walking my dog and I think about how many things this could impact. It's just like my brain just starts racing about more and more things. And and I actually want to start off with something that I was with 15 traders the other day. We were all sitting down at dinner and and a big part of the conversation was. Now, a lot has changed in the past week, but I think this conversation is still probably happening amongst a lot of traders and, and people out there is, is coronavirus the trigger that exploited the weakness that we were already going to see in the market? Because in my experience, a lot of times you'll get a headline and that will be just be the push that the market needed. Obviously, this is a lot bigger than a push at this point, but, right. but is or is the coronavirus the main reason we are seeing this this action in the market? It's a little bit of both. And, and, and I think the way I look at these things is I kind of look at through a, a Minsky prism. I don't know if your listeners have, have heard of uh, Hyman Minsky, but he was a famous economist who wrote about – he had the famous phrase, stability uh, uh, breeds or, or leads to instability. And that is – and we, we know this from um, – our, our time in markets, Anthony, you've been around long enough to know this too. We start a cycle with people not taking enough risk because we're afraid uh, and no one wants to take liquidity risk, you know, committing to an asset for an extended period of time. And we end the cycle with everybody wanting to commit. And this happens irrespective of Fed policy, happens irrespective of, of, of fiscal policy. It's just human nature, right? We, uh, everyone thinks that low interest rates uh, trigger risk taking. They certainly don't hurt it, but the real, what really triggers risk-taking, and we've seen this time and time again, is one, do you feel secure in your situation? Do you feel safe to step out and take some risk? And two, do you see people around you making money, right? I mean, this is why in the, in, in the financial crisis in 2008, we saw crazy lending going on in 2006 and 2007 when the Fed funds rate was already at five and a quarter. It wasn't the price of money. It's because Goldman, you know, it's because Merrill Lynch saw Goldman Sachs making money and wanted to make the same loans and they did it more aggressively. It's because my buddy who I grew, grew up with saw people who he thought were, weren't as smart as him taking leverage bets on housing. And he said, oh, I'm going to do it more aggressively because I'm smarter than they are and got levered up with negative am, uh, neg -am loans. Right. Yeah. So that that's the, the big process. So we've been in this thing for 10 years and little by little layers of risk get built into the system. Uh, and so uh, the way I look at it, you know, when we started the process in 2010, 2011, uh, I, the, the punchline I was using is when I, people said, aren't we going to have another recession? Aren't you worried? Uh, is, aren't we going to have Lehman too? I said, you can't commit suicide jumping out of the basement window. And with every passing year, we go a couple floors higher in the building as we get back to normal risk-taking and the pendulum swings into excessive risk-taking. Now, the further you are in that pendulum from no risk-taking to excessive risk-taking, uh, the smaller the trigger need be 
to get you to unwind. So you would need something massive uh, in you know 2011, say, or just pick a, pick a time, a much bigger shock to get uh, the same kind of sell-off that you could get today after risk has been quietly building for a number of years. I think that natural process, that Minskyan process, is uh, the bulk of the reason why we're seeing this, and this and the coronavirus is clearly big enough uh, a trigger to get that to unwind. So rather than, you know, a lot of guys have been saying, oh, this is just a Fed, uh, a Fed-induced artificial um, stimulus and it's all going to come crashing down. It's going to end badly. Every cycle ends badly, irrespective of the policy stance. It's just it, it's just our nature. And it's a miracle, really, that this, uh, well, not a miracle, but it, it's kind of impressive that the cycle has lasted so long. In part, that's because people had uh, PTSD from the last crisis and were slow to take the uh, – take on risk the way they might have been in, in, a, in a previous cycle. But a lot of that, I think the policy responses have been have been on, on, on the whole uh, pretty good. So uh, it was going to happen sooner or later. And the further you, and the longer you go, the smaller a trigger you need to get this thing to, you know, get the avalanche to kind of, uh, you know, start, uh, start start rolling. And I, th- I think this has done that. The, the risk cycle now, you can say, is over. Yeah, I mean, every breakup ends badly. <laughs> I mean, it's just reality, right? right? And I agree with you on how the longer something goes, the more fragile it is to break at the end. And yeah. I, I want to go to your pin tweet. Uh, I always like going to people's Twitter accounts and see what their pin tweets are. And in yours, it says, inherit a 2% economy, dump a boatload of other people's money on it, get 3% for a year or two, claim it's the greatest economy the world has ever seen. And when the turbo fiscal boost rolls off and the economy starts to slow, blame the Fed for not keeping interest rates at zero. Yeah. That was a fairly political tweet in a sense because about the policies uh, in the current administration. Uh, and there, in that, though, there, there's the analytical uh, basis of, one, uh, we did not get much for our fiscal stimulus, Right. Uh, and that's pretty that's pretty evident. Uh, and, and it wasn't the trade war. We were slowing down before that. If you look at the path, you can see as fiscal policy rolled off, the economy slowed down. So we got, you know, the idea is you provide fiscal stimulus when the private sector isn't willing to take risk because it's just had a shock to its risk appetite. And then as risk appetite normalizes, you back off of that. That's that's the right policy response. Right. And, and it's not always pumping up the the, the economy with uh, with with fiscal spending. So it wasn't the right thing to do at the time. Not that, uh, you know, I'm not one of these people who worries too much about the debt or the deficit, but it is a problem when we're not spending it in a quality fact in a quality way and we're not spending it at the at, at the right time. So uh, one, uh, the time, the, the fiscal timing was 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 wrong and irresponsible and self-serving. The second uh, fiscal policy uh, it is more important than monetary, even if it, for a short period of time it does move the needle. You know, you can give someone more money, but they still need risk appetite to go out and spend it. So cutting taxes, as we saw, when you do that, people just put the money in their pocket unless they unless they really want to take risk. Same thing about the Fed and liquidity. People think, oh, they're pumping liquidity in the system. It goes into the stock market. Well, if you just change instruments, if you give me cash instead of a bond, you to go out, you're not going to turn around and buy Tesla stock with it. Unless, unless you're really crazed uh, with, with, with risk appetite. So uh, you just kind of understand these mechanisms uh, properly. 
Yeah, that's something actually I, I, I learned from you, and, and you've talked quite a bit about this a lot over the last several years. And, Incessantly. Yeah, and uh, the other day, another tweet that you put out um, was you said that a Fed policy response is coming, but this ain't it. Well, I meant, uh, I meant, uh, well, actually, I meant, I, I meant a policy response is coming, but this ain't it. Uh, and, and that is we need a fiscal you know, monetary policy can't really help us here. All it can do. And the Fed is focused on this because of the last crisis is to keep the plumbing clear. Right. They want to make sure the markets are working as best as best they can. And there's some issues with that we can talk about uh, because we're working under an entirely new architecture that has not as, not not been stress tested. But uh, their radar is up and they're watching it and the banks are much better capitalized, but there are going to be plumbing issues from time to time, as we've seen in the long end of the Treasury curve, uh, that, that are going to have to be addressed because maybe they're bumping into some of the regu- new regulatory requirements we put into place to make the system um, better, uh, be- better, uh, better capitalized. Um, but I'm sorry, the tweet with the, that, I, I lost track of the tweet that you were referring to. So I'll, I'll read it again. Um, I said okay. – the tweet you put out was a policy response is coming. Oh, but, right. But this ain't it. And you said all the Fed right. could do is ensure the plumbing works and they're all over that, yeah. but they can't make you take risk. Yeah, I got a little lost there. But yes, uh, so the, the second point there is the Fed can't help except keep the plumbing clean and the response has to be fiscal. Uh, and I, I think it, it kind of doesn't matter a whole lot right now because of the economic response is secondary uh, to uh, kind of the the, the 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 crisis, the virus crisis. But uh, you know, my if there were to be a tagline about how to deal with this thing from a policy, uh, you know, standpoint, and just and not uh, you know not not just them, but also us uh, in in in, uh, in our in our behavior, it's uh, you know we got to <laughs> we got to shut it down. Protect the people on the front line, and get uh, economic assistance later uh, to the people, uh, the, you know, the workers and, and and the people most disadvantaged or hit hardest from from the loss of income, and that includes parents, uh, working parents with children. This is going to be particularly difficult to manage for them. So, you know, uh, shut it because the, the the more aggressive our our our, our response in shutting this down now the better we'll be able to, the more time we'll be able to buy and the, and the better we'll be able to manage it, not just in terms of the capacity for the healthcare system, which is critical as we're seeing in, in, in Italy, but also maybe they'll come up with, with better treatments and maybe even they'll come up with a vaccine. So buying time, there are a lot of people who always say rip the bandaid off no matter what the issue is, particularly in finance, but, but very often buying time is, is the right response. So, you know, stop it, you know, shut it down now, protect the front line, compensate the, the, the people hit hardest uh, econ- economically. And I think that's uh, that's kind of where we need to go. And fiscal policy can only do that last element. Right. It can really only address that last element. Monetary policy is not going to do it because you can put as much liquidity in the system as you want. But people aren't going to use it unless they have risk appetite. And we've seen this time and time again. So what I'm getting from what you're saying is the most important thing right now is is buying time right get through this because this is something that we do see ending so it's about getting through this at this point in time of course the health side of things is number one priority but when we talk about the economy side of things 
we've gotten a couple of things so far, and I'm just I'm going to see what you think about them. And we had this uh, the surprise 50 basis point cut by the Fed, and then yesterday I watched a lot of Mnuchin, <laughs> and he said yeah. the benefits in the Corona uh, uh, virus relief package for small business are going to be just for the companies that are 500 and smaller. Um, what are your thoughts on what has been done thus far and what you think should be done next? Well, I think the people much better qualified than I am to, to say what the micro policies should be. And what's been done so far isn't that uh, important either on the economic front. The important thing is that the, the government send the message that, hey, we got this. We're going to fix it right as best we can work together get through this get it's not going to be over for a long time but we can get past the crisis phase right and then manage this thing uh, and it's going to be running through uh, the the virus is going to be running through the economy for for a long time the numbers that 40 40 million people eventually are going to get this right we want to stretch that out uh, so as to buy as, as much time as possible the economic stuff can wait but we need the messaging that hey we got you so the confidence can return. We're doing the right things. We know it's going to be a fight, but we can get through it. That that kind of you know kind of wartime footing, yeah. uh, and that's the message. And I think Mnuchin wasn't bad on that. So the and the details don't matter. They will fix them as they go along. The important thing is to, is 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 to send that message. And unfortunately, we were about three weeks late in in you know in doing it. We were told it was contained. We were told that there are 14 cases, probably going to zero. We were told that there would be test kits for everyone. We were told a lot of things that turned out not to be true, and that undermines confidence in in the in policymakers. What was great about the uh, the, the financial crisis in two thousand and eight is Bush dropped his ideology and said, "Screw free markets. We got to fix this thing. Tell me later how you did it." And guys like Bernanke and 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 Paulson and Geithner were out there on the front lines trying to you know, trying to send that message that we're on top of it. It took a while for that to get through because we were in free fall and a lot of people were skeptical, but it, it finally got there, but it's, it's really confident. So from a market standpoint, what I always say, it's, you don't, you don't really have to see light at the end of the tunnel because markets are highly anticipatory and there are a lot of false starts, but one of them ends up sticking. We just need to know that there would believe their reasons that the reasons to believe there might be light at the end of the tunnel soon Right. Just that confidence, just that the rate of change isn't isn't uh, things aren't worsening at a faster rate. They're, all they have to do is worsen at a slower rate, you know, kind of when a stock doesn't go down on bad news. Right. Yeah. That you're that you're getting to the end. We need that kind of confidence shock. Uh, and I think it will come. Uh, it's the it's just when you're three weeks late in a dynamic that is exponential. <laughs> Uh, we've uh, we've lost a lot of ground, and we're going to end up doing a lot of damage uh, for 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 that for that delay. In my opinion. Hey everybody, a quick pause here to talk about FTSE Russell. They are a leading global provider of benchmarks, analytics, and data solutions. The Russell 2000 Index is a key benchmark for small cap U.S. stocks. Be sure to check out the E Mini Russell 2000 Index futures contract symbol RTY. For more information on FTSE Russell and their products, please visit FTSERussell.com. You mentioned the financial crisis. I mean, a lot of people are comparing what we're seeing now in markets. When it comes strictly to markets, what happened then and what's happening now. And something that you talk about is how 
If people haven't figured out that gold and Bitcoin are not a hedge or a safe store of value, um, that people need to start rethinking that. Yeah. Talk to us more about that. Well, one, I just don't believe Bitcoin is, is, is real. It's been around 10 years and still doesn't have a use case beyond black market purchases. And there are guys who tell themselves a lot of stories about what it can be, just, but really they just want to get rich quick. That it's, it's a speculative vehicle, right? And they can even delude themselves that these things are real. I'm not saying they don't believe these things that they're saying. Obviously, some don't. There are a lot of scams and promoters in the space. But it, it's just it's, it doesn't seem to, 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 to be there for me. So that's, that's that. And we're seeing that, I think, in the price, in the price action. Uh, the, on gold, it, it stopped being a monetary asset when Nixon closed the gold window back in 1971. But old, old habits die hard. You know how it is with traders. I remember, um, you know, Mexico after doing, you know, everyone used to look at Mexico when they used to trade the currency as an oil producer, right? Because Mexico produces a fair amount of oil. They still, they still do. Uh, so the currency, uh, the Mexican peso would trade along with the price of oil. Well, it, it stopped in 1994 being an oil economy and became a NAFTA economy. And not only that, uh, if you look at their balance of payments, they import more petroleum products than they export crude. So they're actually net importers slightly. So they're not uh, a petroleum uh exporter at all. It does matter a lot for their fiscal accounts, but that's a, a totally different issue. When you're trading the currency, you, you need to look at the balance of payments uh, primarily. And there's still people saying, and I saw, I think it was uh, uh, Scott Minard uh, uh, on TV referring to the peso as uh, an oil currency, right? It's been since 1994, old thinking dies hard. And it's the same thing with gold. So, uh, with each generation, new traders come up and they look and they say, oh, you know, that a lot of people are hold, clinging to old ideas, uh, but, but the younger guys can recognize that those old ideas don't make sense. So they adopt what makes sense. But the old guys kind of, you know how it is, uh, they, they stick to those ideas. This is why they say science progresses one funeral at a time, because the old guys don't change their mind, but the new guys coming up have the freedom to, uh, to, to choose what makes most sense to them. And they're not wedded to any particular set of ideas. And I think that's what's, what, I think that's what's happening here with gold. People are going to realize it's no longer a hedge. It's no longer a monetary asset and it's going to be uh, a less desirable. Uh, that, I think that's how it's going to be a long, a long path, I think, but I think that's what's, that, that's what's happening in 2008. Gold fell 35, 40 percent in the most intense period in the crisis. And then you get people saying, well, that, yeah, because it's a it's it is a hedge. People were selling it to 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 raise cash. And that's not a hedge. No, you know, losing 35 percent is not it, 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 when the market goes down. 35 percent is not a hedge. I think they're again a little bit like the Bitcoin guys. They're telling them story themselves stories that they that that they they want to believe uh, and uh, they're they're drawing their analysis from a period that no longer exists. Yeah, I mean because I think that as traders I look at it as there's no real hedge when everybody all of a sudden is starting to lose in one position and that position isn't performing enough to outpace the loss. All of a sudden nothing is safe. I mean, and and for me I've learned over the years when I see everything going down at once it's just everyone's just selling whatever they can get their hands on and those are days you don't want to fade. Exactly. Texas hedges don't don't, don't work. I remember so in on February 20th when I I I realized that 
we weren't pricing in a kind of a zero probability of a uh, coronavirus uh, problem. And there were some political things on the horizon, you know, Bernie Sanders. And I, we were priced for perfection. And I saw some things that could disturb that. I, I told guys, don't hedge over on the behavioral macro feed, reduce gross units, reduce gross units, right? Don't add hedges to protect your existing position. Just reduce your positions and then respect your stops on the way down. And, and t- taking some of those stops was painful, right? But you take them, I took them, and then you end up, you feel a lot better uh, a week uh, a, a week later. Uh, so that's how you, you know, cash is your only protection. There's some hedges that work at certain points of the cycle. So it, back on February 20th, I shorted some NASDAQ. Not aggressively, but I shorted some. You know, mostly I just took down gross units and, and I just shorted some NASDAQ, but it wasn't as a hedge as much as to, to make money. And uh, then I, 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 you know, I worked my way out of those. I, I took those off over time. But uh, later, you know, everyone is shorting NASDAQ and S&P futures at the beginning and they work quite well as a hedge. But towards the end of, of a kind of a, you know, before a bounce, towards the end of a particular downdraft in a bear market, uh, you see that your hedges, these super liquid hedges, uh, aren't working as well uh, as they were at the beginning because they're so crowded. Everybody is already short, and what people are selling is those illiquid positions that they were holding on to before. So, in, in, you know, before you were, you were perfectly hedged going down at the beginning, maybe even outperforming, and then towards the end you realize your hedges aren't working at all, and sometimes they can even go go up in your face as your positions continue to go down. And it, so, uh, it's one, that's a lesson about hedging, uh, and two, uh, you know, versus reducing gross units. And two, uh, it, it's a lesson about reading, looking for indications that we might be close to a bounce, and it's dangerous to press shorts. I want to stay on gold just for a second. And you got a lot of the, the gold bugs out there that will say, well, look at it in 08. Yeah, you and I just talked about how when things get bad, when you know what hits the fan, everything is going to go down. But then eventually gold rallied. Throughout that time, yeah. I would say that wall of worry that we were in equities the whole time, people kept buying gold. Uh, right. I think a lot of people are saying that, you know, that could be exactly what's setting up again now. You know, gold's coming down initially, but as we start to move forward from here, as we ride this wall of worry, because let's face it, um, for a period of a good period of time now, even if the markets stabilize and start to go up, there's going to be that wall of worry a- along the way. And the gold people, the, the people that are the gold bugs that are saying you want to be long gold. Okay. I can see how a lot of people would think that, but but I would be willing to bet aggressively that the fewer people think that this time around than last time because of the experience in in the intervening period. When gold went you know when gold went down last time, uh, the monetary policy response was aggressive, unprecedented and unimaginable. Right? The cut rates to zero started QE and people people believed at the time, much more than they do today, even though there's still a number of people who believe it, that the Fed could inject this money into the system and it was going to force things to go up. And they didn't understand that notion that people need to be willing to take risks to get that to happen, right? So people said gold is going to go up. There's going to be – and how many people believed, Anthony, that there was going to be inflation after what the Fed did in 2008? I remember uh, having a meeting with uh, a prospective investor in, in, in the hedge fund. Uh, saying, you know, Mark, I told him my views on inflation. I said, they're printing money, if you want to call it that, but it's not going to cause inflation. I explained why. And the guy went back uh, to uh, his, the family office that, that had sent him 
and they called my uh, the, the the owner of the hedge fund that I work for and said, you know, Mark's really smart, but on this, I think he's just out to lunch. He's a little crazy. You got to you know you got to rein that in. It could be dangerous for your book. And uh, that the thinking was that strong. Uh, it didn't happen, and people noticed it didn't happen. So there's a lot of learning, uh, a lot of learning by doing. Uh, and the monetary stim- stimulus is not unprecedented. We've already seen, you know, when QE3 came, guess what happened? That was the top of gold. That's when the bubble broke. So I think a lot of, you know, little by little, people will learn. The, uh, people will learn. It's a little bit like, you know, a bouncing ball. You drop a ball, a basketball, and each time it bounces a, a little bit less high if you don't touch it. And that's how these waves kind of go through. Some people will think gold is going to perform that way. So you might get some of it, but it won't be as strong as last time and it won't work. And then the, the next time, less. And the next time, less, because people are, are, are learning learning by doing. The only possible hedge that you can believe gold works for now is inflation. And I don't even think that works. Uh, but we're And we're probably not going to get inflation. So the, though I'm sure some people are thinking along those lines, Anthony, I just don't think uh, that I don't think it's right. That doesn't mean it doesn't go up for a while. That could happen. But I think what we're seeing right now kind of tells us, right, uh, uh, kind of tells us. I, I just don't think it's going to be that way. And I agree with you that this time around, there's going to be less people that believe that and, and, and maybe not necessarily don't believe that. But I think gold is getting diluted by Bitcoin and all of these other different ways that people are looking for these stores of value so the pool no matter what i think has shrunk just because of those things that's that's exactly the dynamic and you know as a trader what that means you know if if there are less people willing to express their view and express it forcefully uh then um you know all the hedge funds that you remember all these guys uh paulson klarman all, all the big name hedge funds at the time uh uh who else did? But there were, there's a long list anyway that were setting up rooms with gold and things like that. Uh, they all got burnt, right? They got burnt badly. Uh, uh, April 2013 was is a month they're going to remember for a long time. So, uh, it, you know, it's as gold as a monetary asset is further and further in the rearview mirror, uh, less people are going to reach for it uh, in times of crisis. You mentioned that you you shorted some Nasdaq. Uh, what other things have you been trading during this time? So, uh, what I do, as I said, I've been giving money back to other people. But I have two styles. One is investing, and the other is trading. Right? These are the two kind of products I, I set up. Uh, and uh, the investment, basically, the investment side, mostly long. Uh, longer uh, term money. But I, when I saw this coming, I de-risked. Kept a couple of positions, uh, kept uh, four or five positions, and since then have stopped out of like three of them on 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 the way down. Uh, so that's fairly static, and I'm really focusing on on the trading. And there I trade liquid futures. You can get you know mostly S and P and precious metals because those are the ones I I understand uh, where I understand best the investor base. So what I would recommend to a lot of guys is focus on fewer instruments, deeply get to know their rhythms, get to know their correlations and when those correlation regimes shift. So an important point came uh, a couple weeks ago where gold had rallied a lot. It had a nice rally since, since, since August, even in a, in a, in a, in a good market and people continued to add to it aggressively as the market started to break down, right? Because they thought 
okay, this is this is a hedge that's going to protect me, uh, lower interest rates, you know, the old the old arguments. So it became a very crowded space. And I saw it would open up in the morning when there was bad news fairly aggressively and then kind of sell off. And, and mostly the uh, the ETF GDX, and, and that's interesting to talk about, uh, was showing me this uh, uh, this behavior and it tends to lead gold and silver by by a little bit. So it would open up fairly aggressively and then sell off and end the day red. Uh, and that's one of those moments where if you short it and the stock market continues to go down, you make money because people liquidate. If the stock market turns around and goes up, it also goes down because risk on is returning. So it, there are moments in these correlation regimes where you can spot really good risk rewards. So I spend a lot of, that's why if you know these assets well, you can read these things. When I was younger, I wanted to be master of the universe and, and you know, track the ups and downs of the Botswana Pula, right? And, and you know, <laughs> treasury notes in Nigeria. And, and that, that to me, it, it was, was wrong. I would have done better sticking, particularly in crisis, particularly with high volatility, with a few assets. So mostly there, I'm I'm trading shorter term uh, opportunities, and I also noticed that uh, you know behavioral macro. I've posted all my results over the past years. You can see them in times of volatility is when I've always done best on the trading side, not necessarily on the investment side, but on the trading trading side. So I'm I'm trying to focus on that. S and P, Nasdaq, silver and gold, and occasionally bonds. Hey everybody, I want to take a quick pause and talk about RJO futures. They are a long-standing brokerage firm with personal broker relationships to learn, discuss, and trade the futures markets. To learn more about RJO Futures, please visit rjofutures.com. Yeah, I mean, as traders, I, I, I'm always making more during the volatile times of my trading, and my investments are all going down. And it's always like, that's just something that we used to always talk about on the trading floor. We'd be like when the market was tanking, we'd all be doing better than we've ever been do uh, have done in the past. But yet all oh, yeah. my investments were going down. And, and because so many traders are investors, and, and you wear both hats, for the people listening to this, uh, most of the people listening to this are traders, but they also yeah. do some investing as well. What would you say... I think to the investor side of everybody out to everybody out there, because we just kind of heard your thoughts on the trading side. Um, what would be some of the things you'd be looking at to do with the market that we're seeing right now? So, you know, these things are very specific to the individual and their risk tolerances. Uh, but there are tricks that, that may or may work for you. So, you know, people listening, uh, just take these things with caution. They may or may not be appropriate uh, for, uh, for you, but uh, they, they kind of work for me. So one of the things I do is I look for assets that I like that might be a little bit more liquid. And, you know, I leave what they call, I've learned the term recently, uh, stink bids, right? Bids way below the market. You'll notice that some things, crazy things happen. Uh, and we're going to see probably some of this in the ETF space. And, and we saw it in GDX on Friday. We should probably talk about that. Uh, you leave these stink bids in there or you leave alerts to the stink, you know, that, that an asset is traded down 30 uh, percent, you know, for no no good reason, it doesn't usually trade like that. Some guy hit market order uh, with a fat finger instead of limit order, and it's it's it, it's an illiquid asset at an illiquid point in, in, in time. So, to give you a very concrete example, uh, HOV is a home builder, and they've had you know it's heavily levered one when the crisis hit, they levered up too early to buy more land banks, and it's taken them a long time to work their way out from under that debt burden. They still have a lot of debt, but they've moved uh, the maturities out. But it's not very liquid anymore. 
and uh, on Friday, and a couple days last week, it had it, it would drop. It's got a ten handle and it drops three points, right? And then over the course of the day, it comes back up as people as as rationality kind of kicks in. Those kinds of assets for individual investors that are interested in, in like uh, closed end muni funds, where the retail base. The ownership base is highly uh, retail oriented and more prone to panic. Find assets you like and either set an alert or a stink bid below. Now, if you set a stink bid, you might get filled too early, right? If you just set it in the machine. If uh, you set an alert, it might happen so fast that you miss it. But that's one thing that you that you can do if you want to, you know, get yourself back in. It's also completely acceptable to stick with the plan. A lot of people now have balance ports, you know, 60, 40 balance portfolios. Don't stick with the plan. It may take us a couple of years to come back, but we will. And, uh, you know, to get out and try and get back in unless you're sitting in front of the screens daily is is, is really, really hard. In fact, it's, it's really, really hard even if you are sitting in front of the screens uh, daily. So – you can stick with a plan. That's totally acceptable. Just don't panic. Uh, it, we'll come back from this. It, it just may it may take a while and, and and be more brutal. If you're more active and you have and you've already got yourself in a position where you have some cash, uh, using the stink bid method uh, to to benefit a little bit from the volatility might help. Now I mentioned ETF uh, ETFs a couple of times and 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 GDX. I I don't think there is systemic risk, but I think there is serious mark to market risk, especially the levered ones. Uh, GDX is not levered, but we saw on on Friday it went from 22 to 16 and a half in a nanosecond. I know. I'm looking and at the chart when you mentioned it. And I'm because look at the intraday chart. That's what I'm looking at. I mean, wow, amazing, right? Yeah. So that we're we're probably going to see more from that from ETFs. Now that was probably some combination of market maker slippage and and uh, not being able to keep up with the destruction and creation of of ETF shares. But um, or and it could well have been as well. And my instinct that there's some of this for sure. Some of this, uh, an asset manager gets tapped on the shoulder and and or just decides I don't care. Just get me out at any price. And and I've I've been in the room with people who have said that. I mean I've I've seen it in you know in my in 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 my professional career. So uh, I think that that kind of thing happened and. Uh, Expect more if you hold illiquid ETFs, and you might want to, you know, get out and look for a chance to to get back in via stink bid or something along those lines. But uh, the ETFs and the uh, algorithmic trading and uh, the move to passive is going to exacerbate these moves, even if they're probably not the systemic risk that people make them out to be, because the banking sector is not levered. You know, the the real risk because the, you know, if if the Oil industry, you know, shale industry blows up. They do bankruptcy. Uh, new guys come in with capital. The assets still exist. We can still produce shale. It's not systemically important that the investors be protected, right? But when banks go go down, we can't get our deposits. We can't get the money out of the ATM machines. And that's where we were in 2008. That's not likely to happen this time. And, and not only because the authorities are on it, uh, the generals are always fighting the last war, but also because the banks are much better capitalized. So I don't think these ETFs are going to be uh, a systemic uh, threat, uh, but I do think they can cause extreme mark-to-market pain, uh, and w- and which begets more mark-to-market pain. You know, if you or I lose all our capital, it doesn't matter to the system, right? But if, if, if a city group goes down, it, it matters to the system, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. One thing on your stink bids, it's, it's, that's one thing in the world that we live in now, in an algo trading world 
is that they deliver prices that you may not thought you could ever get. <laughs> and if there's right. something that you like, you know, I do this a lot of times on data points as an intraday trader. I'll look at a number and I'll I'll be like, okay, if this number, what's the worst case scenario or the best case scenario to where I think if this comes out, um, we could get to this area. Um, that's an area to where I go, well, I think the, the market was maybe really smart, but actually very stupid, right? Like the algos will read it, but they took it to an area that I felt was way out of whack for what that news would be. And I always right. have those scenarios and, and, and I don't call them stink bits, but yeah, those are the opportunities that I think you could look and, and And I really like that for investors out there. If you do your homework and you know, there's something you really like, if you put something out there for a price that you may want and you have your risk as to what, you know, I always say, know where you're wrong. That might be a great price to you, but also know where you're wrong in that. And you might get it, right? I mean, no, and listen, if you buy something at a 20% discount like that, uh, you know, I said stink bit is a term I learned uh, last week. I saw it online, but I, I knew the concept. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you buy something 20% down, doesn't mean you're not going to be underwater on it. It just means yes. you have a better margin of safety. Uh, and the other thing I'll say is, it, what you sh a lot of people want to want to get the stocks that go, buy the stocks that go down the most. That's not what you want. You want to buy the leaders, the ones that are going to survive. You don't want people with maturities falling due, heavy maturities that they might not be able to roll over falling due in the next couple of years, just in case. You can you can afford to buy the quality names even if they haven't fallen as much. Pay up and 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 buy those. Uh, it's it's a it's a much better strategy. Uh, I've talked. I wrote a piece on uh, for the the blog called "Misunderstanding Liquidity." And I wrote it in 2018 in December, basically at the very bottom, because I think it was mistaken to think that was uh, as Fed triggered as, as as the market narrative suggested. I think a lot of it was the algo, uh, you know, the algo cascading that we were talking about, the ETF waterfall, that you know, those those kinds of things uh, drove it down very sharp. The the it was. It wasn't as vicious as this sell-off, but it was extremely vicious relative to the nature of the shock. And I think that has to do with the new financial architecture, uh, uh, you know, that uh, that we're facing. The, the piece talks about three different kinds of liquidity. The first is systemic. That's the Fed making sure the plumbing is working. Now they can put all the liquidity they want in the plumbing, but it doesn't mean uh, that it's we're going to use it if, if our risk appetite isn't there. The other two types of liquidity are directly related to risk appetite. One, transactional liquidity, market making. You and I know this uh, very well. You just look at the the ultra bonds and you see it. When times get wild. People aren't willing to make markets uh, the same way as they did before. Bid ask widens out, and in the credit markets, you get the matador bid, where the, you know you see on someone sends you a, a run with prices, and you call, and and they say, well, you said it was at seventy three, and they go, well, yeah, but um, uh, yeah, I, that was an indication, right? And all of a sudden, the bid is five points lower. Uh, so you see a lot of the uh, the liquidity transactional liquidity dries up, and and that's really a function of our willing to take risk, and not a function. Of, of how much uh, of, of how much liquidity the Fed has 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 put into the financial plumbing. Uh, the second type of risk is credit risk or rollover risk. You know, everyone talked about zombies now. Low rates were encouraging zombies. Low rates don't encourage zombies. It's zombies are, are it, it's really about rollover risk. Are people willing when that maturity comes due? Are people willing to extend it? Are they willing to roll it over? And it's not, and you know, people prefer to lend at higher rates. So lower rates don't encourage people to roll over, you know, lenders to roll over. There must be another reason if they're willing to do it, and that's risk appetite. We understand why everyone wants to borrow at low rates, 
but we don't understand why people want to lend at low rates. They want to lend at low rates because of risk appetite. They feel confident. And, and so uh, rollover risk is, is a big deal. Market making risk, uh, liquidity is a big deal. Uh, systemic liquidity is not a big deal right now. I think they're on it. Getting to the market making risk, you and I were talking prior to this about how I have, I mean, this is my 21st year of trading. I have never seen bond market movement like this. I mean, it is, I'm typically a, a treasury trader. I trade the 10 year, 10 year ultras. And going back to what you had said is that, you know, everyone calls them the most liquid markets in the world, but yet when no one knows what to do, <laughs> I'm not working bids in this. I'm not working offers in this. The only time I'm working an order is when I'm getting out. Because almost everything I'm doing is at the market at this point. As traders, we understand this because it's like, even if I love a price right now, I'm not working a bidder offer there because until I see what it does when it gets there, I don't want to be in and underwater on a day trade. On a, a, you know, as a, a as a market maker, really all of us are out there that are day trading are making our markets. Uh, right. Why would you want to put that risk out there? So I think right. that is. So I just I, I want to ask you is with what you're seeing in the bond market. First, have you ever seen anything like this? And and just your thoughts on it in general. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't seen anything like it. Uh, so I'll say a couple things. First. Uh, this is a perfect example of how the Fed can put trillions of dollars into the plumbing, into the, into the, you know, into the Fed fund system, right? Which is kind of trapped there and have no impact whatsoever on on the risk appetite that bond uh, traders need to go in and out. So exactly. that link that people think is there, it's really not there. Uh, it, it, the, and and if if you if you didn't understand it before, you, you should you pretty much have to understand that now. We're seeing it. Uh, in real time. Second, I think part of this has to do with the new regulatory architecture uh, that I, I, I referenced earlier. The banks are under much more scrutiny, under much shorter time frames, uh, in many different directions. They have there's the liquidity credit ratio that they have to maintain for their liabilities, right? And then there's their capital cushion that they have to uh, keep in case their assets deteriorate in value. Two separate things. Uh, they've got uh, many other things that uh, that they have to track to make sure that they're in compliance uh, with being a health, healthy bank that is not the, not uh, at risk of, of bringing the system down. Some of these things might be impinging upon uh, banks' willingness. It, it certainly was the case in in, in the repo flare-up that we had in September, uh, but impinging upon the, the the willingness of banks to 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 make uh, to make markets. And the Fed is on that. They and they're going to look at it. And I think over time they're they're going to fix that. Not going to be able to stop people from not wanting to take uh, risk. Normal guys, you know, like you and me. But at least you know the banks are going to dial back the risk as well. But they dial it back much more. In a regulatory environment that's 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 become more rigid, and in one where the conveyed expectation of regulators are, you better not screw up, right? Because we're all all all, all looking uh, all looking at the past. So, uh, I think um, some of it will, that will get better. It's to some to some degree, but you know, until we get out of this environment, uh, all assets that trade are going to be wider in their in in their bid ask, and the market making less robust. And the thing is, rightfully so, because of all the reasons we just talked about. Yeah, that's that's how that's how it happens. The uh, one way to think about the reforms that they put in place, because a lot of good things were done, but some things that weren't so good. You know, regulation is. I mean, my 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 view was the large part of the reason we got into the crisis in 2008 was because there was no regulatory framework for the shadow banking system. 
It was a new thing. We hadn't heard of it. And if, if Greenspan or Paulson or whomever had come out, you know, whoever the Treasury Secretary was in 2004 and said, you know, we think too many people are getting mortgages. I think it's a little risky. We need to dial that back. Any congressman that supported them would have been out on their butts. You know, you're yes. against the American home ownership dream, right? Yeah. You, you can only fix uh, regulatory frameworks in hindsight. That's a problem that democracies have. And that caught us that, that caught us here. And then after the crisis, we do two things. We tend to do, make two mistakes. We do a lot of good things, but we also tend to overcorrect. And we fight the last war a little bit too much. Uh, and so to sum up the, the regulatory changes since then, I would say the capital cushions are much more, more robust. So the, the chances of a fire starting are much lower, but the number of firefighters able to respond have been cut back. So some of the tools that, that were politically objectionable uh, that were used to kind of uh, bootstrap our way through, uh, through, through the crisis have been taken away. So it's the, the system has become a little bit less flexible, uh, but, but much more protected. So, you know, less firemen and less tools to fight the fire, but a much lower chance of fire. I think that's the right way to characterize it. A question I constantly get is what platform do I use to trade futures? Well, I use TT. They are the world's fastest commercially available futures trading platform. Now they have integrated tools for advanced options trading, cryptocurrencies, and trade surveillance. You could try it now for free at tryttnow.com. A couple of questions before I let you go. Uh, you already mentioned crude oil a couple times today, and, and I got a little bit about your thoughts on it. But I think it's undercovered right now from, from the media. And, and I know, obviously, and rightfully so, because of everything that's happening with the coronavirus. But what do you think about this and its impact on what we're seeing in the market? So I don't think it matters so much. I really don't. Okay. Uh, and I've been saying this for years, you know, when when oil goes up a lot. So oil, basically, two things have happened. Uh, one, oil as a share of our as a share of our wallet has declined dramatically. You know, it's gone from nine percent to four percent or whatever the proper number is. And it would be at a lower it would be at a lower level if if local authorities hadn't been increasing local taxes on it because you know it's a way it's it's an effective way to get money and it's environmentally friendly so you can sell it to a large portion of the population uh, so it's it's much lower portion of our wallet share and it doesn't drive the consumer we saw this when it went up uh, and uh, so that's one thing it doesn't help the consumer as as much as it used to. On the other hand, we have more oil producers here, so the economic hit from the production side is going to be uh, be be greater. However, as I said, they're not systemically important. They can yes, it's important for market for guys in the markets to, because it's a, a higher share of the high yield market than it is of the S and P 500. The S and P 500, it's not really an issue. But for oil markets, it could get structures to unwind and it could trigger some cascading. So that's there. But from a systemic point of view, I don't think it's I don't think it's that important. And we're conditioned. A lot of us have lived through a lot of oil crises and oil driving uh, driving the bus in terms of the economy to a greater degree than is true today. And we're kind of anchored on that past. And this is why you know a lot of people were surprised when the correlation to, between oil and, and the S and P, the you know the inverse correlation. Uh, didn't di- it didn't work? In fact, it was positively correlated because since uh, tr- futures trading went uh, uh, electronic back, I think it was 1999. Uh, correct me if I if I got the date wrong, but 
since then, a lot of other people have gotten into it. And, and instead of being 70% commercial tra trading and 30% speculation, it's inverted. So oil tends to be positive, has tended to be, when not in crisis, positively correlated to the S&P because it's spec guys risk taking, right? So I just don't think, yeah, it will hurt people in their P&L. Uh, but I don't think it's a systemic issue, and I don't think it's a massive issue for for growth. The prop, uh, it, it's what's different today from the oil crisis, the, the 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 pop in the oil bubble in 2014, 2015, is that we're ready for it. Not only is it, we we saw the big the bubble uh, popping in 2014, 15 was a big surprise. No one is surprised now. If you, if you look at my tweets, you, you you can see I've been saying oil is dead for about three years. It's just in the path of dying, right? And it, the oil companies that that everyone has been trying to knife catch, uh, instead of we kind of you know look at equities, we look at equities as discounting an infinite earning stream. Well, now it's finite. We don't know how finite, but all of a sudden we've got to truncate that uh, those cash flows at some arbitrary date and discount those back because after that, they're not going to be there, or at least some of them not going to be there. Many of them are going to die. And there's a lot of leverage in that system that survived the 14, 15 crash that's going to come out now. But but it the, the bubble popping, which is the big expectation shock, didn't manage to push us into recession. And I don't think that matters that much now. The coronavirus is a much bigger deal and will probably push us into recession. It's hard to escape that uh, uh, that thought, but oil itself uh, doesn't doesn't worry me uh, too much. Last thoughts for today. We talked about a lot of different things, and you with your trader head on right now. We just saw probably the wild this week. I don't know, maybe ever. <laughs> you know, as as, far, as long as I've been around, it's the wildest week I've ever seen. Going forward. What are you what are you looking at? What are you focusing on? What are you preparing for in the coming weeks in your trading? I'm looking uh I expect more volatility, but I'm watching the volatility markets closely when if you want to think in the very simple terms to go back to what I was saying earlier about Minsky cycles if you want to call them that, you know, starting very risk averse and ending the cycle extremely uh risk prone, risk you know, risk inclined. Uh in, in liquidity and volatility terms, it starts with uh, volatility being high and everyone being afraid to take volatility risk and liquidity being low and everyone uh, will, uh, unwilling to take liquidity risk. Uh, by the end of the cycle, we have layers of people that have built in structures and strategies that try and capture uh, illiquidity premia and volatility premia. And we don't know how those unwind when things get as, as as volatile as they have now all i remember uh in even uh even uh i guess just a little bit before the crisis in 2007 a little bit of a canary in the coal mine we saw korean exporters uh that had been and we saw it in brazil to some degree a little bit in mexico uh, to less degree in turkey but in a lot of emerging market com countries the trend in the dollar weakening had been so strong and so pervasive that they took it for granted and they were pre-hedging uh their in a certain sense export uh, export receipts right so they were they were trying to sell the dollars now rather than to wait for those dollars to come to come in because they thought the dollars were going to be less in the future so they were doing that by going you know without getting too complicated by shorting uh certain strikes and certain you know volatility strikes and instruments that blew up on them as soon as things started to reverse 
there are some similar structures like that now. We don't know how many, uh, and they make things very treacherous. We just don't know how it can go, but just layers and layers of things build up over time. You know, as we go from the the basement to higher floors, in, to, to return to that metaphor, uh, and uh, so I'm watching that space. Uh, very closely and related to that, I'm looking at correlations. You know, we, they're all assets that all of us have assets that we know really, really well, and we know how they're supposed to behave in different uh, volatility regimes and risk on, risk off regimes. Watch those for anomalies. Uh, those are the things I look for. And once those start playing out, uh, you know, we we know we're closer to the end. We might be seeing uh, the beginning of some of that. Lastly. We talked about the coronavirus a lot today, your connections to Italy. You've been on top of this relatively early. What are you doing to prepare for the coronavirus? Personally? Yes. Oh, well, uh, I have a really good setup here uh, in, in that uh, no kids in the house and my wife isn't here either. So, uh, and I work from home. I don't, you know, have a, a job where my income is going to get cut off kind of thing. I'm not, you know, I'm not in that position. So I'm for a guy my age, uh, I'm, you know, vulnerable, probably not to death, but to hospitalization. And there are people who depend on me. So, you know, I'm taking all, all the, all the precautions and it's, it's relatively easy for me to do so. So I'm not something, someone you should worry about the people we need to worry about are are working parents and people whose incomes are going to get cut off, um, you know, uh, for, from, from basically things being being shut down. I mean, there, there's that tendency, like as we were talking about earlier, to say, oh, you know, well, everyone's always crying wolf, uh, you know, the bear who cried wolf kind of thing. Uh, and it's not that bad. It's only the flu. And it gets reinforced through certain, uh, you know, media channels and, and obviously through from, from the administration. And people want to believe that. We want to believe uh, that our, our, our lives aren't going to be disrupted. We're paying the price in some sense of Western individualism in, in, in Europe and, and the U.S. We have democracies and, and a lot of independence that they don't really have uh, in, in, in Asia. Uh, it's costly for politicians, uh, very costly and risky for them to tell us to make to, to ask us for sacrifice. Uh, and so they don't. And it's it's difficult for us to recognize that we need to sacrifice. Uh, so we don't until it hits us in the face, a lot like the regulatory blow ups we were talking about. Uh, and so um, once, you know, I was a little slow in, in recognizing it, but once once I did, I realized the nature of it as a risk manager and said, okay, go aggressive early, right? You know, you cut your positions early, don't Texas, Texas hedge all the rules of, of aggressive uh, risk risk management. So I think that's what people need to do. You know, um, listen listen to experts. They know, had, had they been allowed to speak more freely uh, uh, and more pervasively at the outset, we would be in a much different place right now as a nation. We're the most advanced country in the world, United States of America. We've got the best technology. We've got the best scientists. And we should be out in front of this thing. We should not be hoping to be as good as South Korea. And, and no, no, no disrespect to South Korea, a very advanced and sophisticated uh, society. But you know what I mean. Uh, so it's the, the bigger the economic hit we take in the, in, in the short run, the better we're doing on, uh, on mitigating contagion. That's what the experts seem to be saying. And the experience in contrasting Italy to South Korea and their responses tell us we're going to pay a price for our individualism. Uh, and uh, just hopefully people get on board early and, and, uh, and aggressively. And, it's, and the people who are making the big sacrifices 
uh, we need to protect them. We need to compensate them and above all, protect the guys on the front line. These guys are the firefighters. These are the guys that are parachuting in to put out the forest fire, the guys that run into your house to save the baby, right? The, these are the guys we need to, to protect. And if it means more, more taxes or whatever it means, we, we, we have to do it. It's, you know, like I said, it's, it's wartime footing. That's the mentality. I think we need to get into it, even if a small portion of the population is going to die, right? It, it, the numbers are big enough. 3% of 40 million or 2% of 40 million or even 1% of 40 million is a lot of people. Yep. No doubt. Um, Mark, where can people find you on Twitter and give us a website to check out? Well, my open the open um, the open Twitter account is Mark underscore Dow, and and the uh, the subscription one, which you know, put in the the plug as it were, it's just thirty dollars a month, and, and it's not you know, you sign up after one month, and it's not for you, it's not your style, you're not getting what you want, you leave, and it's great. Uh, if you like it, you stick around for as long as it, it it works for you. That's behavioral macro, all one word, and the the website is uh, behavioralmacro.com. Some of the posts there are open to the public and some are for subscriber subscribers only. Mark, what can I say, man? I mean, I learn so much from you every time we speak. I can't thank you enough for taking the time on a Saturday morning to speak with me. Uh, I wish you well. You're, are you got all the animals with you? Because you know I will. No, I'll, they're all here. They're all yeah. good. So the, the animals are fine as long as I get, can't get uh, catch the virus from, from dogs, from petting other people's dogs. I'm okay. <laughs> I know, but my dog is with me everywhere I go. I took her for a ride right. the other day, and, yeah, and we, we went and stocked up on uh, on pet food. It was uh, just me and her for the day. But like I said, Mark, you're you're a great guy, good friend. Thank you so much for joining me on Futures Radio Show. Thanks, Anthony. Be safe. Thank you for listening to Futures Radio Show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can listen to all of our episodes on futuresradioshow.com iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher.